This episode of the Radio DePaul podcast is brought to you by Lionhead Pub, where Lincoln Park roars. By Hakabaka Kati Rolls, bringing Indian street food to your dinner plate. And by Snarf Sandwiches, handcrafted, oven-toasted, ridiculously addictive. Let's start the show. Okay, so today's going to be busy, but I can do this. I have three classes. I have to go grocery shopping. I have to finish some laundry. I have to produce this podcast while also editing a second project. And I have to go to Home Depot to try and fix this leak that's happening in my basement. But in spirit of this week's show, if I keep talking about it, none of this stuff is going to get done. I will be right back. Here's an interview with a rabbi. I'm Adam Shalafu, the sports news director here at Radio DePaul. I'm with Eliyahu Beniyun, a rabbi in Lincoln Park, and we are going to talk about what it takes to challenge yourself. How are you, Adam? Good to be here. I'm pretty well. You know, I got a, a good night's sleep. I'm ready to have some philosophical discussions. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself to uh, get us started. As you mentioned, I'm a rabbi here in Lincoln Park. I also direct the uh, Chabad DePaul student group on campus um, and uh, Chabad of Lincoln Park, which is a uh, organization that provides services to the Jewish community here in the area. I grew up here in Lincoln Park, um, studied abroad for most of my uh, teenage years, and um, yeah. Very good, very good. Um, and how does uh, Judaism teach us or teach uh, people prescribing to it to uh, live a better life and challenge themselves? So Judaism is all about um, challenging yourself and uh, living a better better life. Um, and uh, it's actually something that we remind ourselves to do every single day. Um, we kind of use the story of the exodus of the Jewish people leaving Egypt Um as uh, as uh, a daily reoccurring experience that one should go through, um, which is leaving one's own limitations, one's own self of sense of slavery, so to speak, um, uh, one's own inner limitations, um, and then the exodus, the the freedom that comes from overcoming those challenges. Um, so that's that's uh, something that we keep in mind on a daily basis uh, in our prayers and, um, and in our studies. Elaborate on that metaphor. So we know that the Jews were slaves in, in uh, ancient Egypt. And um, when, when they had this miraculous exodus, splitting of the sea and then going into the desert and uh, having the revelation at Sinai, that's what really formed the Jewish people as a nation. Um, and... Um, we, we celebrate this, this miracle, this miraculous exodus on a yearly annual basis through Passover. You know, many people are familiar with the holiday of Passover. Um, well, my, some people are maybe not aware is that in our prayers, um, we remind ourselves of this occurrence every day. And um, in the more mystical spiritual teachings of, of the Torah, of Judaism, um, it talks about the idea that we're not only remembering the physical exodus, but also the spiritual exodus, that um, the Jewish people had to leave their, um, you know, what they might have gotten used to 
in Egypt um, and what they've been accustomed to and what have, may have been enslaving them on a spiritual level um, to be able to become uh, a nation and receive the, the, the Torah at Sinai. Um, and for us to really have a, a deep connection with God today, we need to remember that that in order to achieve that connection, uh, we have to be able to overcome our own limitations, boundaries, um, maybe some of our, our habits that stop us from, from really having that deeper connection with God. Would you say that a spiritual challenge is harder than other types of challenges in life? I, I actually think that there's um, no black and white about it. I think they're all interconnected. Um, so, you know, one may be going through a physical challenge um, and the, the spiritual dimension of that challenge, uh, reaching to that spiritual dimension of the challenge might be a way of, of overcoming it and not, not seeing things as polarized, uh, physical or, or spiritual. Okay. What made you want to become a rabbi? Um, actually, to me, it's uh, about um, connecting with people and connecting to people through spirituality. Um, and um, I think being a rabbi and creating a community uh, in Lincoln Park where there isn't an existing um, Jewish community uh, was was something that I'm just very passionate about and, and felt that you know this is this is something I, I should be doing. How do you connect with the congregation or the people that you lead? Um, so my my first goal is to simply connect on a human level. Um, you know I you you're seeing me now in the studio. I have a beard, a kippa. I wear the tzitzit and. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, con preconceptions that people have when they see uh, maybe a religious Jew. And um, my, what I try to do immediately is just connect on a human level. And we're just, you know, two human beings uh, meeting each other. Um, and we may have a lot more in common than we think. Um, and then finding, uh, you know, a place where we can both connect on a spiritual level and, and ultimately reach into our, our Judaism. Um, in a deeper way. All right. How do you challenge yourself every day? Um, well, you know, the, uh, it, it's not such a, a deep, complicated thing. You know, I go, I, I have similar challenges, and I think most people have in terms of, you know, trying to be disciplined, trying to, um, you know, the, the goals that I've set for myself to reach them on an everyday, uh, in an everyday way. And, um, that's, you know, it's a daily battle. All right. Um, what do you think are the challenges facing the students you meet with? That's a good question. Um, you know, on one level, I think every student goes through their, their own unique challenges. So I don't think there's like a general, um, you know, one challenge that, that I could think of. But if I do just try to look at the bigger picture... I think students have a very sincere approach to life um, where they, they really want to get it right and um, they see maybe a lot of the problems in the world or um, personal issues that maybe no one else is aware of um, that get in the way. Um, and I try to be there for them to, you know, realize that, you know, you can do it. You can, you can get, you can reach your goals. You can be the person you want to be. How does faith challenge you? So 
the faith in Judaism is uh, about believing in a in a oneness that is um, present in in the world. Um, the idea that everything in in creation really has a commonality, and um, and that commonality is what we what we call God, meaning reaching into an absolute being, um, an essence to all of creation. Um, and I think that daily life uh, really makes us feel that there's a lot of friction in the world, that not being able to find that commonality where our, the different experiences in our life make us feel that there's there, it's very fractured. And um, so, you know, being able to look for that essence, that oneness, is really the challenge and not, not being cynical um, because it's, it's either, you know, easy to see faith as just magic. Um, and I try to stay away from that. Uh, it's not, it's not, there's just this like fantasy land. Um, and also it's easy to just be cynical and say, you know, what the heck. So trying to just be very real about faith and seeing it as, um, something true in, in your life is, I think the challenge. When do you feel like your faith is challenged or maybe you don't feel that way i certainly do um if i didn't i you know <laughs> could not be having an honest conversation with you um so i i think that my faith challenges me when you know i'll, I'll experience something where it, it doesn't feel that it's in process with every you know with with that oneness that i i feel in other times or um so that that's really you know where I, I struggle to not just get cynical or also not just to be lazy and and struggle to find the you know how how it's truly a positive good productive experience why do you think challenging things happen i think that um nothing just happens um and that may be the you know what people struggle with because the premise of that question why do challenging things happen seem to imply that they're out of context you know they just come from the sky and just like boom it happened so i think the first place to start is that nothing just happens mm -hmm. um there's always a chain of events um everything is within context um and that um again that there is that that core being in the universe which we call god which is where everything emanates from and uh once you see it that way um then it's not just a challenge that happened but rather okay why did it happen and how does how do i make my life better through this um and then it's not so much this like open-ended question talk a little bit more about making your life better through a challenge um I mean, there's the obvious idea, which is that without challenge, you don't have growth. Um, actually, in, in Judaism, there's uh, in the Talmud, it discusses that to commit something to memory, to really um, study something where you become a part of it is, you know, you can't study something 100 times. You have to study it 101 times. And that 101, that one more step, you know, is what, what makes all the difference. Um, and, uh, and I think that 
going that one more step, it may not seem huge, but it's it is that going across that line is what is is all the difference in in just being complacent or really becoming a better person. Okay. And what inspires you to rise to your challenges of every day, or if you're going through a particularly difficult challenge, uh, push through? Um, a big inspiration for me are the people that I meet. Um, every day I meet people who are doing incredible things, who have gone through things in life that I, thank God, didn't experience. Um, uh, negative you know, people have suffered tremendously and just seeing how happy they are and how they're able to overcome that inspires me tremendously. How can people use the concepts of Judaism to face the challenges they face in their everyday life? So I think the idea of happiness, of being happy, is essential to overcoming challenges and to holding on to faith. Um, understanding that happiness is not um, is not simply uh, a state of being, but something that needs to be achieved. Um, uh, that that ultimately to be happy is a choice, um, and that is a, a Jewish idea that one should always be happy and strive to to reach happiness. And I think um, today because it's hard to simply be happy we look for happiness in um you know we equate happiness with maybe pleasure or um maybe you know just being silly could be just being happy and sometimes that's true the simple things in life bring you happiness but um the deeper idea that you know things may be down i may be having a hard day but i can still make a choice to be happy because it's something within me that no one can take away, that nothing can um, stop. And if a person can get there, if a person can make that choice and that decision, you know, at 5 p.m. when you're, you just feel like everything sucks, and you say, I'm, I'm going to make a decision now to be happy, and you put a smile, you like physically, like, you know, put a smile on your face, and you walk out the door, and you're just like, you know, you have like a, a bounce in your step, I think the person will feel like they just rose above a challenge. And I think that um, that's a practical suggestion to uh, choose happiness over being a victim to our circumstances. All right. Do you have anything else you would like to add? No, just thank you for having me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope this helps You know someone out there. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Okay, just got back from grocery shopping. Now I have a little bit of downtime before I have to go do laundry and edit. Last night I was told an amazing quote from Herman Hesse, and the quote reads, We are not going in circles, we are going upwards. The path is a spiral, we have already climbed many steps. A lot of people, especially as they get older, tend to see their life as this never-ending loop, you know, a circle. But life is anything but a closed loop. We need to remember that we can never regress. We are always going up. We are always spiraling upwards because we are always learning. Hey everybody, we're sponsored today by Lionhead Pub. Lionhead Pub is the ultimate sports pub right in Lincoln Park on Lincoln Avenue. They have dozens of flat screen TVs to check out those Bulls and Blackhawks games. 
And every Thursday night, they have Country Thursdays featuring live country music, drink and food specials, and no cover charge. Check them out at lionheadpub.com. Lionhead Pub, where Lincoln Park roars. We're also sponsored by Snarf Sandwiches. Snarf Sandwiches voted the best sandwich in Boulder, Colorado, and they're now in Lincoln Park at the corner of Webster and Sheffield. They have great oven-toasted sandwiches of all kinds. Tried the Italian yesterday. Very, very good. As well as soups, salads, milkshakes, all kinds of great stuff at Snarf Sandwiches. Go check them out. Snarf Sandwiches, handcrafted, oven-toasted, ridiculously addictive. Hakabaka Kati Rolls is back as a sponsor again this week. Now, if you haven't tried a Kati Roll, what are you doing? Seriously, I've been telling you about them for weeks. They're great. It's sort of like an Indian burrito. You have a flatbread layered with an egg and then filled with your choice of toppings, be it lamb, chicken, paneer if you're a vegetarian, all sorts of these great high-quality fresh meats that they load up your Kati Roll and then you can finish it off with one of their four house-made chutneys or sauces and layer it up with cucumbers, lettuce, whatever whatever your heart's content. They're located on the east side of the 1237 West Fullerton building right here on campus. So stop in and try Kati Roll for yourself. Hakabaka Kati Rolls, bringing Indian street food to your dinner plate. Hey guys, welcome back. Thank you, Derek, for that wonderful plug. This next segment is brought to you by Donye Lewis, a contributing newscaster here at Radio DePaul, as well as a contributing writer for the DePaulia. A young black man lies on the icy floor of a family friend's first floor apartment. There is no heat, and temperatures in the house are below freezing. He is enrolled as an undergraduate student at DePaul. He is also homeless. These are the opening words of Donye's story on the front page of the DePaulia this week. The story regards a DePaul alum Edward Ward, now 23, the founder of Men of Vision and Empowerment, or MOVE. He is also working as a youth organizer for Blocks Together on the West Side. Donye felt it was appropriate for this week's topic. Now he'll share a little bit of his story. Time to do some laundry. So my editorial on Mr. Edward Ward that came out in the DePaulia this week means so much to me for so many reasons. Being a young black male and even looking how I was raised and how I grew up, I was always looking for those positive role models, you know, those positive representations of black men in the media because there are so many negative portrayals of us. There are so many stereotypes of us. There are so many boxes that people try to put young black men into. And so when I'm turning on the news or picking up a newspaper or listening to the radio, I'm looking for people that are like me, that are trying to bring change into their community, that are trying to make an impact, that are doing great things as black men. This story not only challenged me as a writer to make sure that I was telling Edward's story in the best way possible, but it also challenged me as a person to be like, you know what, society? I'm not going to let you determine me anymore. I'm going to be active, and I'm going to create my own box, and I'm going to create my own pedestal, 
and I'm going to make my own story because society doesn't determine black men. Black men determine black men. My name is Edward Ward. That's E-D-W-A-R-D-W-A-R-D. I am 23 years old, um, and my job title is a, a, a youth organizer at Blocks Together on the west side of Chicago. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, really excited. I'm going to put the, because you matter more than me. So um, as long as it gets you more than me, it'll be fine. Um, the first thing that I piqued my interest um, following you on social media is um, you, when you finished your undergrad, um, and you said four years ago um, you wanted to drop out. I wanted to get, um, I guess, what changed, um, what was, what happened from your four-year-old self that was sitting there, and then the person that pushed through and ended up graduating and finishing your undergrad. Tell me the time frame and tell me what changed with that, with those two different people. Well, uh, when I was in high school, um, I was a straight-A student, uh, but I was surrounded by black students, let's be real, just I was surrounded by black students. And so I wasn't aware, it sounds weird, but I wasn't aware of the color of my skin. I mean, I knew I was black, mm -hmm. but I didn't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. But then uh, the minute I got to DePaul, in my first class that I ever had, I was in a predominantly white class where I was the only black student. And for me, all of the insecurities with, I was reminded first of all that I was a black man and all of the insecurities with that came flowing. Um, and so I automatically felt that I wasn't smart enough to be here. And I, I was already a person suffering from, uh, from, from low self-esteem, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and struggling just to, as some people say, find myself. Mm -hmm. um, but then when I'm in a classroom with people who I feel are already smarter than me because they have more than I have. Mm -hmm. You know, they have families. Um, obviously, I had a, I have family, but you know, they, you know, my assumption was that, uh, you know, they have the, they're family oriented. They have people around them that will support them. Family that's going to support them if they are uh, in financial trouble. They're mm -hmm. going to have that kind of a family and support system. Um, but at this time, I was uh, in the middle of going through uh, an eviction. Mm -hmm. um, we were uh, recently put out on the streets. Uh, and so my freshman year of uh, of college, I was homeless, and my mom was in and out of the hospital. So her and I were going back back and forth to court, and uh, she was in and out of the hospital. So I had to, you know, take up the burden and you know go back and forth to court on my own, you know, and just asking the judge, you know, just to show a little mercy on us. Don't put us out on the street, you know. Just show a little mercy. Give us a little bit more time, mm -hmm. you know, until we find somewhere to go. Um, but I mean, they gave us like a few weeks or so, and. Uh, Still, we found nowhere and were forced uh, to uh, into the streets. Mm -hmm. And so, one of my mom's friends allowed us to uh, move into her house. And this was the uh, this was around the middle of the winter. Um, one of her friends allowed us to uh, move uh, in her house with her. And this is your freshman year. Yes, of, of college. Okay. And uh, I remember um, just sleeping on the floor uh, on the first floor, and it was I mean there was no heat. It was freezing, and I say it was below zero. There oh, was wow. no heat sleeping on a cold floor. But I'm like, I was grateful for that yeah. um, because she opened up her doors to us. And so, you know, we're just we're struggling through it. And uh, at this time, we don't have any food in the house. You know, we're trying to find a way to make ends meet. And my mom is like, you, you know, you have some of those panhandlers that mm -hmm. sit on the corner and, uh, you know, ask for money. Um, but for me, it's like I, I couldn't sit on the corner and ask for money. I had to go to houses to different people and just ask if they could just help us yeah. know, because uh, at that point we needed help. And um, dealing with all of this 
at the same time, I was going through a really uh, bad breakup. And so I was extremely depressed. I mm. was suicidal even. Um, so I had a conversation with one of my professors, uh, Dr. Valerie Johnson, and she's going to kill me because I always tell this story. To people. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I was failing her class and uh, she asked, what did I, she asked, why did I choose to come to college? And I said, because I wanted, I wanted something different. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, you know, provide a better life for my mother because she was struggling and she was very sick at the time and she was in and out of the hospital over and over again, like throughout my life, she's in and out of the hospital. Um, so I wanted to provide better for her so she wouldn't have to stress. And uh, the professor said, uh, well, do you think that failing this class or dropping out is going to get that done? And I said, no. Then she said to me, she said, I know you said that you're, uh, you're a man of God. And I say, well, that's what I say, yes. Mm -hmm. And she says to me, she said, I want you to prove that you're a man of God. She said, now I'm going to, I was missing a lot of work in her class. Mm -hmm. And so she says to me, I'm going to give you a chance, two days to make up all of the work you're missing. And if you make up this work, then I know you're a man of your word and you're a man of God. And if you don't make up this work, then I know you're just a, a person that just talks a good game, but, you know, put, puts nothing behind it. Yeah. So she gave me the chance to complete the work. I finished the work the same day and turned yeah. it in the very next day. Okay. Um, and so she said to me, she said, uh, you know, now I know that you're a man of your word. I know that you're a, you're a man of God. But and, and so she began to just talk me through uh, what I was going through. And she said to me, and I tell this story all the time, she says to me, you can decide to drop out now, work a mediocre job live a mediocre life and have mediocre babies. Me, I'm like, you know, I had a sense of humor. I don't want mediocre babies. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so in my mind, there's a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of messiness my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And then coming from a school um, where I was constantly talked about, um, coming from a community where I was constantly put to the side, mm -hmm. multiple instances where people have tried to run me over with their cars, multiple instances where people have uh, literally tried to kill me. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm fighting for you and you don't even know it. Wow, I mean, someone that, I understand you completely, I've gone through mental health since I was uh, in sixth grade, um, sixth and seventh grade, I guess that's where like informated. it. Um, I was gonna say how much of home now plays a role in what you're doing um, for justice now with regards to you being a um, youth organizer and whatnot, how much does that, um, are you reminded when you're when you're out there when you're doing the rallies and doing the protests and whatnot? Um, how much does home influence you? Well, um, when when I go out, I see again. I see the conditions of of my people, and for a lot of them, they don't understand that this is a condition, and they don't understand. They believe for them this is normal. Mm -hmm. I've spoken with many of uh, my uh, younger family members, my uh, younger cousins, uh, and for them this is normal. For them, they don't believe that they can be something more than just an athlete or more than just an entertainer. Mm -hmm. That is the primary and that is the sole focus of what, uh, what the system teaches them they can become. Mm -hmm. uh, prime example, my old high school that I graduated from, you know, they're big on the basketball team, they're big on the football team, mm -hmm. yet at the same time they laid off the librarian because they couldn't afford her. That makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Because you're saying that academically our people are not competitive, yet physically they're competitive. If they can give you good, good, good lyrics, or not even good lyrics, if they can give you a lyric, if they can mm -hmm. give you a rhyme, uh, backed up with a nice or, or a hot beat, or if they can play 
some ball, then you're saying, this is where we're going to measure your success. And for a lot of them, they don't realize that very few people are actually going to make it in those industries. And so it's like this is where the confusion comes in. And so I come in just to uh, assist in reminding and educating them that there is so much more you can do. I was doing interviews with uh, some of uh, some of the uh, younger people, and one guy came to me uh, in the in the interview, and I asked just out of curiosity, "What do you want to be when you get older?" In my mind, I was saying, "I hope he does not say an athlete or an entertainer." Mm -hmm. He says, "I want to go to the I want to go to the Air Force to uh, to do science, you know, to work in like the science field, to the science portion of the Air Force." So it's like he he loves science and he loves math, and for me that was strange. Yeah, because so many of us, so many of our people, they love basketball. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it being a hobby, but if you're betting your entire life on this, that's a problem. Yeah, and so just seeing that there is hope and that you know there are those people in the community thinking differently. Now they just need to know where they can go. Yeah. How they can bring these ideas out. So I see, uh, and I uh, took some of, uh, there are a few interns at DePaul who, uh, who, uh, who comes and volunteers with us. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them, uh, she's, she's, a, uh, she's a white girl. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, she has a certain view of the community. Mm -hmm. And it's very offensive. It's a very offensive view. Um, when she first came, it's like, you're afraid of the guys on the corner. You've never been in this community. You've never had a conversation with these guys. So you're not afraid because of something you experienced. You're afraid because of something you heard or a stereotype that's crossed your mind. Come and understand. So I took her for a walk around the uh, community and she saw countless amounts of vacant lots. And in every lot, it's a lot of trash, a load of trash. It looks like a third world country. Mm -hmm. And she says, there are a lot of lots in this community. Why don't the city just build houses on these, uh, on these lots? I said, that's a good question. That's the question we've been asking for a long time. Why don't the city invest in the west side of Chicago? Why not? And so these are the questions that continue to come. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, you answered it perfectly. Um, I want to know more about, I'm hoping that we're still, we're still recording and going. Yes, we are. Um, this, so this, this um, white woman, um, where, why was she, why, why were you guys interacting? Why was she there? Or she, she comes often to yeah, she's what a, she, 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 So she's an intern from, uh, from DePaul. Okay. And uh, she chose our site to come to. Um, but I don't think that she knew where we were. Okay. What, what was our what our location was so, and she chose your site, meaning your group site. Yes, um, uh, uh, the organization blocks together. Okay. Yeah. And she chose to intern at with you guys, mm -hmm. and then that's where you yes. showed her. Okay. 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 Um, um, I was going more, um, and I wanted to know more about the the young man that you spoke with. Um, he was also from the your. Your, your youth organization? Yes. Okay. So uh, um, he, he's one of the guys uh, that, that were interning for uh, a job during the spring semester. So he's a high school student. Okay. Um, my question was, um, was more, um, so you're doing that for him and you're trying to show um, people that they can be more than that. Was mm -hmm. there an individual, I know you said your father wasn't in your life, but who was that individual for you that showed you that you could be more than the stereotype? Was there someone, or was that all uh, self-work that you did? Uh, well, I can't take the credit for it all. Um, 
it, it was definitely my mother um, mm -hmm. and her struggle. Um, ironically enough, I, I said it was my father too. My father wasn't around, and it's like I had a, I had a strange way of looking at things. I didn't look at what my father did. Mm -hmm. I looked at what he didn't do, mm -hmm. and I realized what I didn't want. I realized at, at, at certain times what I needed and didn't have, mm -hmm. and so I began to act on that. Um, but then I had a, a other uh, people who influenced my life, such as my pastor, uh, again, my, prof uh, my professors here, uh, more specifically, Dr. Valerie Johnson. Um, so I, I had a, a group of people around uh, to continue to uplift me when I needed it. Mm -hmm. um, and just needing friends to talk to, you know, you can call late at night. I mean, I've been that friend for so many people. Mm -hmm. But then just having it, just you can just talk and just express yourself. So having those people around, they definitely uh, help to get me where I am. Yeah. Um, so now moving on, um, something else that I saw on social media that um, sparked my interest was you just recently found out that Emmett Till is in your um, family tree. Mm -hmm. um, I want to know more about that is it um, a direct tie and then how much um, that now um, pushes you and influences you well uh, so I was having a conversation with my grandmother um, and often I say you know you have to have conversations with the elderly people of your family because society just pushes them aside so you have to get that wisdom mm -hmm. there is so much wisdom that we are we're denying because we push the older generation to the side so I just I had a conversation with her uh, and she began to just tell me about how she marched with Dr. King. Um, and I mentioned uh, Emma Till to her, like for, for some reason I mentioned Emma Till. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know that was your cousin. I said, no, I didn't know that. Um, I said, well, how, who, how is he our cousin? She says uh, that he's your aunt's first cousin. Okay, his mom is your aunt's first cousin. And I'm just like in awe, just wow. My initial reaction was, we need to go back in history and you know, <laughs> and get build a time machine and go find these these people. Yeah. You know? But uh, just just having that uh, having that connection, it's like I read about you in the history books, and I can't even begin to imagine what you went through. But now there's a blood connection. Now it's personal. But the fight has already been happening before I knew that. Mm -hmm. But I have to be, uh, at some point I, I could have chosen to continue the fight in anger, but it's, it's like that pushed me even further to continue to make a difference, to continue to make a change, um, to continue to fight for the m countless amounts of black men and women and children who are being lynched to this day. Mm -hmm. And we call it a police brutality, but I think that's the politically correct term. Mm -hmm. The reality is they're being lynched by state-sanctioned gangs. And so it's time to, it's, it's time to point these things out. I've had conversations with, uh, with, with officers. Uh, when I was arrested on a protest, an officer said to me, you know, he asked a question. He was a black officer. He said, why are you here? You know, why are you uh, arrested? Or why were you arrested? Or why were you protesting? And I said to him, we're pro I'm protesting personally because Police officers have been conditioned to see us as black men or black people as criminals. He said to me, you're absolutely right. He says, that is why when my children leave the house, I say to them, do not associate with officers because they are out to get you. This is the condition of the police officers. When they see us, they're policing us. When they see white people, let's be real, when they see white people, they're protecting, they're them. protecting them. So I was riding home uh, today, uh, I was riding home from church and 
I happened to look on their car and I saw the uh, words, we serve and protect. And I'm saying to myself, that is the biggest lie to told to man. We serve and protect. You don't serve and protect the community you're in right now. You're occupying this community. Uh, and so, like, how, how do we fix that? So, and I've had other conversations with other officers who, uh, who, who were black, who are black, and they mentioned that there is a lot of racism that they experience on the police force. There is a lot of corruption they experience on the Chicago police force. And they want to speak up. They, they, they want to say something, but the reason they, are, they remain quiet is because if they speak up, then they're going to be demoted, then their pensions are going to be tampered with, and they have a livelihood, they have a life, and they have a family. Mm -hmm. So they choose not to say anything. Mm -hmm. And those officers who are corrupt, they get the raises and so they continue to occupy the high positions so that those that are subordinates, once they do the same thing, they're being rewarded. Yet those who attempt to do right, they get reprimanded, they get ridiculed. And so we often say there are a bunch of good officers. Now the question is, where are those good officers? They're being misused on the police force because they're overwhelmed by all of the bad officers. The police, the police department is more bad officers than, than, than it is good officers. Mm -hmm. And I say that intentionally because we often say, oh, there are more good officers than bad. That's not true. Because if it were true, then the good officers would overwhelm and weed out the bad officers. They would just, they would do away with the bad officers. That's why I say that because, because a lot of them comply. Dr. King says, um, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in the time of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. So, so if these are good officers and they're not saying anything against the bad officers, then the hottest places in hell are reserved for those people. Mm -hmm. Because if you say nothing, then you're contributing to the problem. He also says, you know, uh, and at the end of the day, I won't, I won't remember the words of my enemy but the silence of my friends. Yeah. So I'm like, I, I don't understand. So, so I, get, I get frustrated and passionate about that yeah. when, when, when they say there are more good officers than bad officers because I see the conditions. Twice I've almost been killed by the police. Twice in my community. They uh, uh, pull their guns out on me just uh, you know, recently, as recently as uh, this year. They attempted, they almost shot and killed me. Um, I was in my car and there was a shooting taking place outside. And so I get out of my car and I, I run into my house. I was right outside in front of my house. And so I run into the house and the police automatically come behind me push the doors down, train their guns on me, and then, uh, you know, they're asking questions like, you know, were you the one shooting? No, I was getting out of the way, right? Um, and so uh, my mom is in the hallway, and so they pull their guns on my mother, and then I jump in front of my mother. My mother says to me, never do that again. I say, mother, I say, Ma, I can't, I can't promise you I won't do that. I can't promise you I won't. But it's like we're constantly f uh, f uh, forced to defend ourselves, and this is this is this happens a lot in the community. We're constantly forced to defend ourselves, and not even just against the officers, but against people in the community too. Because I often say, anybody that kills black people, whether you be black or otherwise, you've become an enemy of the black community. You've become an enemy because you are literally killing our people. I want to talk about recently. Um, you um, you preached during um, Martin Luther King Week at the event. Um, what was the event called again? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 I had it. I blanked on it. Um, but that was I saw you afterwards. Um, what did, was that? Your um, I don't. I definitely don't believe that was your first time preaching. No, no definitely not. Um, but was there a difference in that preaching that week? Um, that being MLK Week. Um, and whatnot, um, was there a, a, a different emotion or feeling that you had during that, that sermon? Um, I kind of just want to get how, how you felt after um, doing that 
sermon that day at that event um, and what it meant to you? Well, for me, um, whenever I preach, I, I believe I preach with the same emotion. Um, because for me, it's all the same fight mm -hmm. and it's all just connected. Um, and I preached about the Good Samaritan, you know, and uh, where the Bible instructs us to love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, the love of our neighbor is indicative of the love we have for ourselves. Um, and so I preach that often. I'm like, if you can just begin to understand and extend that love, that's one thing. I tell them, I said, one of my biggest curses is that I have grace, so much grace for people and so much compassion for mm -hmm. people. Um, and people look at me like I'm crazy. Um, when you look at this, the condition of the uh, guy on the road and you have a person who calls themselves a priest and they walk past the guy on the road, don't help him. In fact, they cross to the other side. And they, there are a lot of things that come with the, uh, a lot of ideas that come with being a priest. You know, you're a man of God or a woman of God. But then you see somebody in direct need and then you cross over to the other side. Then what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. But then you have somebody who knows nothing about you, who, don't, who, who, who doesn't have a title, but they're a Samaritan. They see you in the road and they come to you and they help you. Not only that, but they provide you with shelter. They provide you uh, uh, with, a, with, with, with uh, medical care and to be sure that you recover fully from your wounds. Mm -hmm. And they ask for nothing in return. That is the way it should be. That is the exact definition of a community. Because Christ said it in, in, in the word. He says, uh, well, this is, the neighbor is the one who helped the man. And just looking at that word in general, and when I preach in my community, I often, what I, would, what I used to say is that I live in the hood. Mm -hmm. But then I began to understand just how a lot of other communities are called neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So you take the word neighbor out and just call it the hood. And there is this disconnect among so many of our people. And they need that same compassion that was shown to the man in the road by the Good Samaritan. I have no more words to say. That was an amazing interview. And I'm so, I'm honored to write this story. Okay, thank you, Donye, for that segment. Now we got one more segment for you guys. It's Derek Peters, and he wrote a short fiction piece to close out the Radio DePaul podcast for this week. I'm finally putting my laundry away, and man, the day's over. We did it. Anything's possible. Somebody Broke the Essay by Derek Peters. At least it was a dry heat, though in retrospect... I don't think it would have really mattered to me if it had instead been a wet heat or even a semi-wet, moist, or damp heat. Nonetheless, the fact that the 105 degree temperature was a dry one seemed to hold a great deal of significance for my co-workers at the Billings Township Parks and Landscaping Department. We were gathered around the long lunch table in semi-darkness because it was the prevailing thought that turning on the overhead lights in the workshop would make things even hotter. The park foreman, Mick, sat at the end of the table, stirring his coffee and wildly throwing out conversation starters to cover up the silence in the room. Tom, Aubrey, and Herb, the full-timer, sat closest to Mick, with John and Tiny, the year-round part-timer, sitting right behind them. I was standing with the rest of the seasonal help around the perimeter of the table, but since it was my second summer working there, I was able to claim one of the better pillars to lean against. All right, we might as well get started, Mick proclaimed, pulling out his notepad. He began to read off everybody's job assignments for the day. 
Aubrey and Tom on riding lawnmowers, Tiny on trash duty, Ryan, Ethan, and Sean on push mowers, John on weed whacking. He paused for a moment when he got to my assignment before explaining that we had a new galvanized U-channel signpost sitting in the corner of the shop. By the end of the day, it was expected that the signpost would be emerging triumphantly from the dead patch of grass near the southwestern corner of baseball field number three. I was charged with making this transformation occur. I looked around the room at the smirks starting to form on everyone's faces. Tom even let out a little chuckle. It was the worst job and everybody knew it. It required digging, concrete work, and sodding, an unholy trinity of strength-intensive landscaping tasks for which 105-degree temperatures, humid or otherwise, were decidedly less than ideal. I was sweating before I even finished walking to the job site. The first time I plunged my spade shovel into the dry, dusty earth, I hit a rock, one that seemed particularly steadfast in its desire to remain in the exact position it currently found itself. The impact sent tremors up and down the metal handle of the shovel and up my arms in turn, rattling my bones from fingertips to elbows. I rested the shovel's blade on the end of my boot. In just a few months, I'd be hanging up my steel toes for good, trading my spade shovel for a fountain pen in my two-story high school for a handful of 15-floor skyscrapers in downtown Chicago. Soon, all of my smirking co-workers would be reduced to characters in my critically acclaimed bestsellers, ones that, I was sure, the New York Times would call brilliant mixtures of the unassuming idealism of suburban life with the cynicism and acerbic wit that is usually reserved for city alleyways. As I stood there, shovel upon boot, staring unflinchingly into the future, I suddenly realized the sting of sunburn growing on my forehead. An essay within an essay on sunscreen. I think my parents must have invested heavily in Coppertone stock. If I told them that I was planning on dropping out of college to move to Las Vegas to marry a prostitute and pursue a career as an Elvis impersonator, the first question they'd think of would undoubtedly be, did you pack sunscreen? Remember, Las Vegas is a desert. Even in the winter, they weren't opposed to citing the fact that the threat of sunburn is still prevalent because the sunlight bounces off the snow. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, I've always had a deep hatred for sunscreen. I hate the way it smells, I hate the way it feels, I hate the way nobody knows what SPF means, all of it. Perhaps instead of working to give us a sunscreen that would allow a person to skinny dip into the burning plasma of the sun without having to reapply, sunscreen scientists should be devoting more of their time towards giving us something that doesn't make our skin slimy and smell like chemical runoff. No, 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 this isn't that kind of piece. This is just a nice, simple essay. The kind that editors at major publications know and admire. From now on, there can't be any more of this nonsense. Tangents like that completely disrupt the focus of the primary story. Anyway, the midday sun rose and rose until it blanketed everything in its oppressive heat. As I continued to scratch away at the surface of the ground with the shovel, the sweat stains emerging from both my armpits had circled around the top of my shoulders. It occurred to me at this point that when I heard people speak of putting their blood, sweat, and tears into a project, the blood, sweat, and tears in question tend to be metaphorical. I was starting to realize just how excited I was to start dripping high-minded metaphorical sweat at some institution of higher learning instead of actual sweat into this shallow post hole. It's alarming how fast pastoral concepts about the nobility of physical labor start to evaporate once one realizes there are still three hours till lunch. An essay within an essay on pastoral concepts about the nobility of physical labor. Until relatively recently, physical labor was really the only kind of labor. It's why there aren't many cave paintings depicting early humans at a desk filling out their tax returns. 
But now that physical labor has been surpassed in upper-middle-class popularity by vocations that are more mentally taxing, a kind of nostalgia has bubbled up for the, quote, simpler times, when work was more easily defined. People find themselves saying things like, it must be so nice to get exercise at work, while they sit on a yoga ball. Well, as someone who's had a job where I was giving ample exercise while at work, I can say that the novelty of not needing a gym membership sours pretty quickly. I highly recommend a lifestyle of mental exhaustion over physical exhaustion. It's probably more lucrative in the long run, too. Again? Seriously, this needs to stop. In order for the essay to work, it needs to build towards some kind of epiphany. All of the narrative momentum gets thrown out the window when stupid rants are just dropped into the middle of another story. They're completely without context, and it makes absolutely no sense that they're there. This absolutely needs to be the end of it. The park was abandoned except for one elderly woman who was walking under an open umbrella. An essay within an essay on umbrellas. I never carry an umbrella. It's one of my deeply held principles. Even if I know it's going to rain, or even if it's raining already, the most I'll do is flip up my hood. It's not just that turn-of-the-century British gentry are the only people who can pull off the walking around with a closed umbrella look. It's the idea that carrying something that's sole purpose is to protect my head from being slightly wet for a little while is way more snobbish than it's given credit for. After all, I have a shower at home where every day I step into a simulated monsoon, but suddenly I'm supposed to be repulsed by the idea of being subjected to falling water just because it's not on my schedule. Oh, come on, that one was a stretch. If the main narrative is going to be interrupted, at least interrupt with something that pertains to one of the critical details in the story, not just some isolated piece of setting. Now enough is enough. It's all well and good to be postmodern and whatnot, but now it's starting to become ridiculous. I really doubt that the New York Times or any other reputable reviewer would even read this now. It's become too weird. It was a clever little gimmick, but now it's run its course, and frankly, it's not funny anymore. An essay within an essay on not being funny anymore. Almost everything loses value with repetition. It's simple economics of the marginal benefit of consuming a good decreases slightly every time you consume it. Humor is no different. I get so frustrated when solid, clever jokes are ruined simply because the author doesn't know when to stop. Jokes are like children. They need some help to get started, but after a certain point, they need some space to do their own thing. If someone is constantly defending a joke or a child by claiming that it's simply misunderstood, that's a pretty good indicator that the joke or child was probably not all that clever to begin with. I hate how some people just continue to beat you over the head with the joke over and over and over again until it's impossible to remember even liking the joke in the first place. An essay within the essay within the essay on beating you over the head with a joke over and over and over and over. Why must all the best idioms be so violent? Curiosity killed the cat, add insult to injury, hit the nail on the head, kill two birds with one stone, kick him while he's down. I can't help but wonder if the glamorization of violence in popular culture stems from something far more deeply ingrained. Surely the way that we speak as a society has to affect the way we see the world. Um, what is happening? Can we please get an editor in here? You know what? This is childish. How is anybody supposed to be able to read something with margins that small? This is why no one reads anymore. Every time somebody comes along trying to tell a nice, entertaining story with a moral and a point, something shorter comes along and steals the reader's attention. I'm done. The essay's over. I put up the fucking signpost, okay? That's the end. 
I put up the sign post and now there's a sign there that says parking for park patrons only or something like that. Unless they changed it. I don't know what the sign ended up being. I just put up the post. I was going to make something up so that the ending was better. Say that they put up some kind of warning that saved a pregnant mother's life or something like that. But now it's just not worth it. In fact, they might have even torn the signpost down by now. I don't know. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's what all of this was about. I worked hard one day, and now there may or may not be a signpost next to a baseball field to show for it. Also, the stuff about the college was tacked on after the fact. I didn't think about college once that entire day. This whole essay is pretty much one big lie. An essay to end the essay on pretty much being one big lie. Don't worry, the essay is just getting started. Well, that was another episode of the Radio DePaul podcast. I'd like to thank everybody who contributed this week. Derek Peters, operations manager here at Radio DePaul. I would like to thank Adam Shalafu, news sports director here at Radio DePaul. I would also like to thank Donye Lewis, contributing newscaster here at Radio DePaul. You can find all of their work on the Radio DePaul website, radio.depaul.edu. Remember to check out the podcast on both the website and the Radio DePaul app on iTunes. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey, what are you eating over there? It's a cotton roll from Hakabaka. What? It's a cotton roll from Hakabaka. Chewbacca? No, a cotton roll from Hakabaka. Oh. What's that? It's a pan-seared flatbread, layered with an egg, filled with fresh meat and toppings, and finished off with one of their four house-made chutneys. Wow, that sounds really good. It's like an Indian burrito. But I'm a vegan. Hakabaka has tons of vegetarian and vegan options, like chickpeas, or three flavors of an artisan cheese called paneer. They even have rice bowls and salad bowls, if that's how you roll. I'll see you later. I'm going over to Hakabaka Rolls. Come on in to Hakabaka Rolls, located on the east side of the 1237 West Fullerton Building, and try a Cotty Roll for yourself. Order for dine-in, carry-out, or delivery. Show your DePaul ID for a $6.99 DePaul combo or free lentil soup with any purchase. Wow, that is good. Told you. Hakabaka Rolls, bringing Indian street food to your dinner plate. Looking for a place to warm up this winter? Come to Lionhead Pub near Lincoln and Belden. With no cover charge and daily food and drink specials, it's a guaranteed good time. Feeling thirsty? On Thursdays, we have live country music, free pool, and darts. Bring your friends and watch your favorite Chicago teams on our dozens of plasma screen TVs. Check us out online at www.lionheadpub.com. Lionhead Pub, where Lincoln Park roars. We expect temperatures to keep falling tonight, getting down to as low as zero overnight. Warm up this winter at Luella Southern Kitchen. Our menu will take your taste buds on a tour of Southern cuisine. From Creole favorites like chicken gumbo to the down-home favorite of fried chicken and collard greens. Come see us at 4609 North Lincoln Avenue, where the Paul students get 25% off all dine-in orders. Or if it's too late or cold to venture out, order delivery and bring Southern goodness right to your doorstep. So don't fly south for the winter. Luella Southern Kitchen is right around the corner. 
If you're feeling so hungry, you could eat an elephant. Snarf's has the best ingredients for sandwiches most elegant. Choose your favorite sandwich, or perhaps a salad or a soup. They'll pop it in the oven, and when it's ready, give a whoop. Your taste buds will cheer, your tummy will rejoice. Because you went to Snarf's, you made the right choice. Need to feed an army or running short on time? Snarf's caters and delivers. You can even order online. Craving something Snarfalicious? Visit Snarf Sandwiches at 955 West Webster Avenue. Show your DePaul ID and receive free chips and a fountain drink with a purchase of a sandwich or salad. Too cold to go outside? Get 50% off your order on Snarf's mobile app or website, eatatsnarfs.com with promo code SNARFS50. Handcrafted. Oven toasted. Ridiculously addictive. Snarfalicious will be your new philosophy. It's already predicted.